Anybody watch, ever watch the show Mythbusters? So 282 episodes uh, from 2003 to 2016. Discovery Channel covered over a thousand myths. They, they went after over a thousand myths. Uh, the very first season, uh, they did the one, can you, uh, uh, can, can you fly in a lawn chair with balloons? Uh, you can. It's a terrible idea, but you, but you can do it. Um, ice bullets. Can you, can you shoot an ice bullet, you know, and then the, the, the evidence, you know, just goes away. Well, you'll have to watch that to find out. Um, you know, shooting fish in a barrel. Uh, is it easier to shoot fish in a barrel? Actually, Yes, that's a crazy episode. They did a whole series when Shark Week came out. They would do these Shark Week uh, Mythbusters and did all kinds of them. Here's one you didn't know. Uh, a knight's suit of armor. If you wanted to get into the ocean wearing a suit of armor, like an old, you know, Lancelot suit of armor, um, would that protect you? Turns out it attracts sharks and is not suitable as protection. That was their conclusion. They did a MacGyver series where they would take all the things MacGyver did in the show and see, you know, if it worked. Um, MacGyver, yes, could have stopped an acid leak with a chocolate bar. It's good stuff. It's important stuff to know, actually. Actually. Well, we're, we're in a series... Um, about living generously. It's the third anchor of our vision statement to grow communities and build leaders and live generously. And we've been looking at that um, through the lens of Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, where we're, we're seeing that God is, is an exceedingly abundant God does more than we could ask or imagine. And we've been celebrating uh, Bethel's 40 years of ministry as a church and with a view looking forward to the next 40 years. And, and to do that, one of the things that we're, we're doing is we are um, asking the congregation, we're seeking to raise uh, $6 million um, this, this year. And so I'll talk to you a little bit more about that um, at the end. I'll give you some details. That's all the campuses, six million across all the campuses uh, for some things on most of the campuses. And so, but to do that, I want to pick back up with the myths. There, there are myths that we believe about money. Uh, there are myths that we believe about riches and, and wealth and stewardship. What, one of those myths um, an increase in money brings an increase in satisfaction. That's a myth. The truth is an increase in money brings an increase in stress. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, uh, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see it with their eyes? The more you get, the more people come around and want, and all the 
it, it really is just something for you to look at. Sweet is the sleep of laborer, the, the one who's, who doesn't have excess. Whether he eats little or much, but full is the stomach of the rich and will not let him sleep. Money brings an increase in satisfaction. It does not. In fact, it's just the opposite. Here's another myth. Uh, wealth is the result of our resourcefulness. Um, that's a myth. Uh, the truth is wealth is a gracious gift from God. You go on down in Ecclesiastes 5 to verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is a gift from God. It's not your resourcefulness. See, you got to go back far before your degree and your grade point average, long before your too many hours at the office or your uh, climbing over the tops of other people. You, you got to go way back before that. You, you were born with the brain you have because God gave that to you. You were born in the time and the place and the opportunities that have been before you because God ordained that this is when you would live and where you would live and who your parents would be or wouldn't be. But you weren't born in the Middle Ages, and died at six months from malnutrition. So all of it's a gift. All of it is a gift from God. And to whatever resourcefulness you point to inside yourself, you've got to go way back, way, way back before that and realize it's a gift from God. Well, here's another myth. This is one we don't say out loud usually, <clears throat> but it's, it's kind of operating. All these kind of operate below the surface. I can be fully surrendered to Christ and still love money. N no, you can't. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Jesus says it's in the red letters in your Bible. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's why the whole conversation of stewardship is so incredibly important. It's because it goes right to the heart of discipleship, right to the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It goes to the very heart of our walk with the Lord, because if money is winning our hearts, then, then he's losing it. We said last week, this is why Jesus talks so much about money, more than any other topic, because he knows it is in direct competition in your life with him. Well, here's a myth, and I want to spend a little time on this one. Stewardship is us giving God a portion of what we have. Some of you are like, well, I think you said that wrong. 
Because that sounds like a true thing. Stewardship is us giving a portion of what we have to God. See, the reason we believe that myth is because we hear sermons on it. I mean, all over the place. You probably grew up with sermons that said something like that, or you hear in an offertory prayer at other churches. We, we don't. Um, you know, it's kind of like one of the big secrets here. It's a terrible thing that it's a secret. Somebody, you know, inevitably once a month will say, ah, they're new here. How do you give to this church? Well, we have boxes on the wall, or you can give online, or, um, well, I mean, we want you to give. We just don't pass a plate here. But sometimes, if you've been in a church, you get an offertory prayer. I mean, I, I've had them. I've said them, honestly. Lord, we just want to give you a portion of what we own. Or sometimes you hear a small portion of what we own. And there's so much wrong with that prayer. I mean, the, oh, Lord, it, that starts out right. Okay, that's a good part. We just want to give you. See, that already reveals how we're thinking about it. What we'll see today, it's already His. We ain't give Him anything. And a portion? That's what's wrong, too. But we actually don't own anything. It's all His. And a small portion. Sometimes we emphasize the, the smallness of the gift, which is totally ridiculous. I mean, you would never give a gift to somebody that you knew, like your wife or your child. And so, well, here's a gift. I mean, here's a small gift. It's really small and insignificant and worth nothing. Happy birthday. I think it's the word portion that helps you. The myth comes out of that. Where does it come from? Well, this idea, a small part of what I own. Well, we think about it this way. I, I, I get my part, which is most of it, and, and God, you, you get your part, which is a certain percentage of it. And I think that's the wrong way to think about stewardship. And we get this idea. I mean, we know where it comes from. It comes from the Old Covenant. But when Israel entered the Promised Land, God divided the land amongst the 12 tribes. Not exactly. It divided it amongst 11, 11 tribes. Levi is the tribe that doesn't get a portion of the land. And the reason they don't get a portion of the land, well, that's kind of complicated, but to make it simple, is because they're set apart to be priests. And God didn't want them to work the land. He wanted them to serve the, the, the people, and serve in the temples, the synagogues. He wanted, them, he wanted them to be the people who were the representatives of him. So they didn't get any land, and they needed to be provided for. So what did God do? He sets up this system called the tithe, and he asked the other tribes to give 10% off the top of everything they produce and give to the Levites so that they can survive and do the, uh, the ministry, and uh, it was a really good system. Now, every once in a while, people would drop off. They wouldn't give their tithes or, you know, this, this was always kind of an issue. God would speak through the prophets because he cared about that. 
Say, make sure you don't forget to tithe. In fact, one place he says, if, if you're robbing me if you don't do that. So where do we get these ideas today that we're to give a portion of what we have to God? Well, maybe we grew up in churches that used these old covenant passages and taught it as though we're still obligated or obliged to apply them in our lives today. And I would say this morning, we are not. And I can feel some of you are really uncomfortable right now. Hang on with me. See, there are no more Levites. In fact, New Testament teaches that as believers, we're all uh, who, who are in Christ. We're all priests, priesthood of believers. We're living in a different age than they once were. It's like the old story, you know, where the, uh, the new bride is going to cook a ham. She cuts off the ends of the ham, and the husband says, why do you cut off the ends of the ham? So, oh, well, it's because it's in the recipe, and because her great-grandmother did that. And he said, well... Gosh, we should figure out why. So they begin to ask. And it turns out the reason the great-grandmother did it is because she didn't have a pan big enough to cook the ham in. Tithing's like that. There was a reason for it. It was commanded as something to be done, but tithing no longer applies. The new covenant instructs us in a different way forward. Let, let me say a couple of things. There's no New Testament epistle Anywhere, no passage in the New Testament epistles where we're ever told to give a 10% mandatory gift to God. It is not in there. And Jesus only mentions the tithe three times. Actually, only twice. One of the stories is recorded in two of the Gospels. Both of the times, he's reprimanding the Pharisees for this pride they have about tithing. And he wants to shine a light. They don't really know God's true heart. Um, you don't have to turn there if you want to. I'm going to look at, at Luke chapter 11, and then I'm going to look real quickly at Luke 18. I'm not going to spend much time there. Luke 11:42. But woe to you Pharisees. So when the woe starts, you know this is bad. Everything after this, this is bad for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And the last bit about not neglecting the others or not neglecting the former could possibly be taken as a place to support the tithe, but there's several things to consider um, in the New Testament at this point, it's not quite yet the New Covenant. Je Jesus hasn't been resurrected. He's not speaking to the church. The temple is still functioning. But, but the point of the passage is that the Pharisees, they, the letter of the law guys, were missing God's heart. They were, they were writing their tithe checks, but, but their lives did not reflect God. They were... Sorry, wretches. See, some people view a relationship with God as, as transactional. Write a check to the church. You pay off God. Now, now leave me alone. Here's a check. Don't touch my heart. This is where the Pharisees were. 
Well, over in Luke 18, this is the other place, Jesus tells a parable here. That's how it starts. He also told this parable, uh, Luke 18, 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee said to himself, uh, Pharisee standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you, I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the sum total of Jesus' teaching on tithing. And he's saying the Pharisees missed it. That the old way, the cutting off the ends of the ham, that was supporting the Levites through mandatory 10% gift, but we're not Israel. We're the church. We're not under the law. We're under grace. We're not required to give 10%. We're told instead under the new covenant to give cheerfully. You could translate it hilariously. Gladful, gladly. Second uh, Corinthians 9-7. We'll look more at this next week. For each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. It's the new covenant giving. Looks like this, you and me, individually, or as a couple, or as a family. We have a conversation with God, and we say, all right, Lord, what do you want to do through us? And then individually as a couple, or as a couple, he lays, lays on our hearts what he wants us to invest in, what he wants to invest through us. And then we say yes, and through the power of the Spirit, we step in. And that's new covenant giving. Some of you are still sitting there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but, uh, just give me a percentage to start with. Here's your percentage. Cheerful. See, here's what the percentage deal does. It does something to our hearts. One, we feel under this compulsion. I have to do this or God will be displeased with me. And I would say, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, God is pleased with you. Period. End of sentence. There's nothing you can do to make Him love you more. There's nothing you can do to... Make him love you less. It's called grace. We stand in it. Our discipleship is grounded in this simple truth. I don't have to perform. I don't have to jump through hoops to please God. What I write on my check doesn't make him love me more. If I miss a Sunday, he doesn't love me less. This is true. 
The other thing it can do, it can make you feel guilty if you don't give 10%. I haven't been doing this. I must be displeased. Or if we can't give the full 10% for whatever reason, we feel like giving up and don't give anything in any way or shape or form. We miss out on the joy of God stewarding through us. We do give 10%. We just check that off. So, well, I'm done because it's the limiting factor. It's the ceiling. And we miss out on incredible blessing that's far beyond that number. Now, I know some of you are sitting here thinking right now, this is the best sermon I ever heard. <laughs> well, I'm not done yet. <laughs> some of you are a little, you know, you might be... Um, Ross, I think you're doing this wrong. You know, if you got to raise $6 million, I think you're doing this wrong. Because the statistics would say, hey, if everybody at Bethel Bible Church, you know, 1,000 or 1,200 or 1,500, whatever it is, post-COVID, pre-COVID, gave 10%, I mean, oh gosh, we'd be there. I mean, what happens if people stop tithing? How do you make the church run? How do you keep the lights on? How do you pay the staff? Much less raise $6 million for the things to come. All right, look. My role, my responsibility is to shepherd you and to do that in grace. And that's my commitment to you. And if we have to use the law to keep the lights on, we'll turn them off. I don't want to do that. But what I'm about to show you is a, is a new covenant concept of stewardship. That if in truth, if the church grasped, we wouldn't have to talk about money again ever. So I'm not worried. If God is in the ministry of this church, he'll provide for our responsibilities to shepherd in grace. So the myth of stewardship, I, I'm going to give God a portion of what I have, and I get to do whatever I want with everything else. Here's the truth. Stewardship is God giving us part in what he is doing. That's Stewardship. Realizing that, that all I have is His, I respond to the Spirit's leading, and then I invest generously in His work at His prompting. Let me show you what it looks like. I'm in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, and Jesus teaching about finances, teaching about money, and He knows people get uncomfortable, and the things haven't changed. And so, He's telling a story. He's telling a, a parable to talk about stewardship kinds of things. And he begins in verse 14, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. His property. You could underline entrusted. You could circle his property. God owns everything. He does, it's all His. First Chronicles 29, Yours, O Lord, 
It's the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. God owns everything. And the person in the story entrusts his property to his servants so they can invest it. Now, a couple of things about that. He doesn't have to do that. I mean, he's the master, they're the servants. The, the assumption is he, he could do a far better job investing it in himself, but he chooses to include them in the business, in the family business, if you will, bringing them into deeper relationship. That's what God cares about that with us. So he includes us in his work. Now, all the resources we have at our disposal are truly His. He chooses to include us in His work by entrusting His resources for His purposes. That's called stewardship. Well, he goes on, verse 15. To, to one, He gave five talents. To another, two. To another, one. And to, to each according to His ability. Now, God entrusts different amounts of money to different people. You might have noticed this out in the real world, Right? And some say, well, that's not fair. To which I would say, deal with it. It's the way it is. God's smarter than us. He knows who he's going to entrust to. Now, so you read the story. We see how he'll make some of those determinations in a little bit. But picking up with verse 16, then he went away. And he who had received the five talents went at once, traded with them, and he made five talents more. So, so stop for just a second here. Um, so the assumption, he invested all five of the talents, and, and he doubled his money. Not just a portion of it, but because none of it belonged to him, it would, it would have... If he'd have started to think, well, some of that's mine, you know, the owner would have had something to say about that. They weren't his. They were the owners, 100%. He invested it in the kingdom things. So, he, uh, so also he um, who had the two talents, verse 17, made two talents more. So, so the first two invested, they double what the Lord, the masters, entrusted to them. One writer describes stewardship this way. It's a radical, holistic view of the resources God has entrusted us with or entrusted to us with the mindset of using it to maximize His kingdom. I'm going to read that again. It's a radical, holistic view of the resources God has entrusted to us with the mindset of using it to maximize His kingdom thinking that 100% of what I have, God entrusted to me for His kingdom purposes. Not 10%, 100%. All of it. Stewardship applies to the things that God cares about. It can, imply, it can apply to your marriage. Investing in your marriage is stewardship. Stewardship. 
here's one view. You, you work toward a long-term goal of giving as much as you can to the church, to, to God's kingdom work. You help your neighbor in need. You care for those around you. Even though that seems to reduce what you have in your reserve or what you can claim as a tax deduction at the end of the year. Anything God's passionate about, He invites us and resources us to partner with Him. That's a completely different mindset than I write a check for 10% and then I'm done. That's what these two stewards understood, these two servants. It's all his, and I'm investing it in things that he's passionate about it. Now, in verse 18, here comes the contrast. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with him. We can think of this, I think, in the picture is when we stand before Jesus as believers. When we'll give an account for our life. What did we do with what we've been given? Verse 20, And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear. That's what we're aiming at. It's what we think about when we think about the judgment, that, that comes from here in the middle of this story about financial stewardship. Then he goes on in verse 21, you've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Faithfulness brings about additional opportunity, additional responsibilities. Enter into the joy of your master. This is the joyful way to live. You want to experience joy. This is the way to live. Verses 22 and 23, and he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I made two talents more. His master said, same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little while. I'll set, set you over much. And enter into the joy of your master. It's interesting to note. The, the guy with two, the guy with five, they're not compared with each other. He didn't say to the guy with two, well, that guy brought me five. Why'd you doesn't do that. He entrusted more to him. He had different expectations for him. He's not going to compare you to somebody else. He's not going to compare you to... It's not a comparison thing. He's entrusted to you what he's entrusted to you. And he wants you to steward it. He expects you to. In the power of the Spirit. Now, verse 24... He who also had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. It's a shrewd businessman. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Now notice, stewardship requires risk. Or, or why else would he have been afraid? I mean, it's safer to just bury it. They need to know where it is. 
But anytime you invest something, you risk losing it. When we step into stewardship, it's a risky thing to do. Verse 26, here, you have what is yours. But the master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And that my coming I should have received what was mine with interest. In other words, minimal investments better than no investment at all. Verse 28, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten, ta- uh, ten talents. Your fairness meter goes off again, and to that again I would say deal with it. That guy stewarding for my kingdom purposes. So I'm going I'm to pour resources into that guy. That's how I'm going to fund what I'm doing around the world. Verse 29, for to everyone who has, uh, to who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not. Even what he has will be taken away. And, and, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's strong language. Jesus is serious about stewardship. A couple of things I'd point out. It, one of the fascinating things about this story the way that Jesus tells it. Is that the master entrusted the servants. So he trusted them. He, he, God trusts you. Three times the words used in the story. First, first time in verse 14, right up front, where the master entrusts all the three servants. Second time is when the first servant comes back to him in verse 20. Master, you delivered to me. That's the same word. Delivered to me five talents. You entrusted to me five talents. The third time is when the second guy comes with the two talents and says the, the same, same thing. So the first two servants, the, the, they, they understood that the master trusted them, and because they understood the master trusted them in freedom, great courage, they stepped out. They, they took a risk. Now, the third guy, he doesn't respond that way. Verses 24 and 25 starts out, I knew you were a hard man. He didn't really believe the master trusted him. You know what else he didn't believe? He didn't believe the master was good. He didn't believe the master himself could be trusted. So he responds out of fear. I I would say one of the things that this tells us is the very heart of stewardship, the very heart of how you steward the resources God's given you. That's a reflection into your heart. It's like this window into your soul. What do you believe about God? This is amazing truth. God has entrusted to you. He he trusts you with. He wants you in freedom to step into those things that the Spirit would prompt you towards. 
See, this is new covenant giving. It's totally different than the old way. It's an adventure. Every day is an, an adventure. Every day is. To walk into where God is leading you. I hope you embrace it. I hope you'll set aside the old way and begin to talk to God about his new way of working in your life and through your life. Now, let me say a couple of things. I had a couple of questions this week with regard to the $6 million that we're trying to raise, and they were good questions, and I want to answer that. One is, is it just the South Campus? Are we just, is it, and I'd say, no, it's, it's all the campuses across the five campuses. And it involves, specifically, there is a building that we uh, want to purchase downtown. It's adjacent to the downtown building. It will allow uh, for space. We're constrained in space down there to do uh, children's ministry or even some adult discipleship. And so it would, it would double our footprint. And it strategically is a place where there is a lot of growth happening and will continue to happen in the downtown area. And just like in the uh, south here, I mean, we said that over the next five to six years, Tyler will experience three decades worth of growth. And we want to be prepared for that. It includes here on the south campus, out um, at the, an extension of the end of our property back there, with an indoor-outdoor space, or what I'm calling a fresh air worship space, uh, with some removable walls. It could be indoor, it could be outdoor, depending on the weather or, the, uh, or what's going on. But it would prevent us, if we had a fresh air worship space, ever having to be shut down again. We wouldn't have to do that. We'd have a space to meet. It would... Part of the $6 million would go to pay for the Hope Campus that we bought last summer. When that opportunity came up, we borrowed the money, and this would go to pay for that. And then um, that, and then up to $2 million, it would retire um, half of the debt that Bethel has. Bethel doesn't have a lot of debt, but we could retire half of our debt uh, with this campaign. And then there are some future opportunities related to uh, White House and to Henderson uh, that we continue to explore and don't have all the details yet, but we want to be able to have some flexibility to, be, uh, to make some decisions as they come up. And then a project in Sierra Leone, and you can read a little bit about that in your uh, booklet, but that's a place where we've committed to uh, planting churches and training pastors, and so there's an opportunity to do something out of this campaign there. So somebody said, well, what if, um, well, what if we don't get $6 million? Well, then we won't do all these things. Somebody says, well, what if we get over $6 million? Well, that's a great, I would be, that's the problem I want to have. I mean, of all the problems I want, that's the one I'd like to have. You could help me. You could create a problem for me, right? That'd be awesome. Here's what we are asking for, 100% participation of those that call Bethel their home. That, 
that you wouldn't just let this opportunity pass by to participate in what God's doing here in this church, to celebrate what he's done the last 40 years and to participate with anticipation exceedingly abundantly more than we could imagine what he's going to do over the next 40 years. This is kind of the first offering to that. So, what we need you to do is I want you to pray. I hope you've been praying. Ask God what he'd have you do. God, you know what I have. So, help me see what I have and help me know what to give. You know, for some, maybe it's assets. You've got parts somewhere that the Lord would say, hey, Dad, I want you to give that. Wouldn't be out of the realm of how God works. This is what I have. What do you want me to do with it? And this is not worrying about what you don't have. It's the stewardship of what you do have. And it's something that all of us get this great opportunity to wrestle with. So, today and next week, I hope you got one of these um, cards, uh, commitment cards. They look, uh, they look just like the booklet, all right? But if you turn it over, that's the commitment card. And we've got them in the back there in the display. You can pick it up. But I, I want you to, I'd love for you to fill it out today if you know what the Lord's speaking to you about. And drop it in. We've got a place to drop it in. It's anonymous. Nobody sees this but our financial coordinator and executive pastor. Nobody's going to know what you did. But you'll know. And it's between you and the Lord. And so fill it out. And it's a two-year commitment over and above what you, what you give and plan to give already to this church. Over and above over the next two years. How might the Lord lead you? To be a part of that. I'd love for you to do that. And, and so, the more that you do that this week, the, the less of an appeal I have to make next week. <laughs> it's like win-win for everybody. If you're visiting with us today, don't fill one of these out. I don't, this is not for you. We don't talk about money a lot here. Um, that's not a good thing, honestly. But this isn't to guilt you. There's no guilt at all in this. This is opportunity. Well, here, I'll close this with this, a couple of reasons why I think you should fill out a pledge card today or next week. I'll give you a couple more next week, but I'll share two. First is a biblical reason. The second's a cultural reason. They're not original with me, but they apply to all of us. Here's the biblical reason. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. His firstborn is first fruit, highest and best gift. Because He gave, we give. Giving's one of the characteristics of God Himself. That's a good biblical reason. Here's a cultural reason why I think you should. It is an antidote to our culture, to our society. See, we live in an age where very few want to be committed to anything. Committed to a job or a marriage. Or... 
A written commitment card swims against the current of America's consumer religion. It is an unselfish decision. We, we get to draw this powerful personal line in the sand of our focused intensity to make something happen. I give you a bonus one. Then I'll pray and we'll go. You might call it an inspirational reason. Make your life count. You get to be a part of something greater than yourself. You, you leave, you, you create, you multiply your legacy. Each of us invests in something. Much of it doesn't matter. Hobbies, sports, Facebook. Invest where you hear Jesus say, well done. You get to be part of a church that tackles a big vision together. And listen, we got a big vision and we fully believe God has exceedingly, abundantly more than we could imagine. I'll leave that with you. If you will, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, pray that you would draw each of us, talk to each of us this morning. Father, you wouldn't let us just sneak out of here unaffected, unchallenged. I pray you'd do that to us and that we would receive that as grace that you love us and you, you do desire good for us. And that, Father, that means having conversations with the depths of our heart about what we would do with that which you've given us and how we would steward your resources that you've put us on in possession of, and control of, and, and to make choices with. So we want to do that well. Father, I pray that you'd be honored, you'd be glorified in our lives and in this church. That no one in here would act or make a move out of guilt or shame, but that, Father, by grace... They would step freely and courageously and excitedly into where you lead them. So, Father, that's how we pray. We pray the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.